0: Is
1: ready. Strikes. Match day one is completed. Crossing Broad FC is back to recap it all and look forward to match day two. I'm Russ Joy at Joy on Broad, joined as always by the illustrious, the lovely, the mild-mannered and very intelligent Phil Kaidel, who uh, you can find on Twitter, at Phil Keidel. That's K-E-I-D-E-L. It's not hard to spell. It's Phil Kaidel. Phil, match day one is complete. Uh, a lot of new things. Some of our predictions were good. Some predictions were atrocious. And one thing that we certainly did not see happening is uh, what's going on with Russia right now in their group, as it looks like they are uh, all, uh, all but assured a spot in the uh, the knockout stage. <sighs> what a beautiful thing, Phil! This this first match day of the World Cup. A lot of interesting storylines that we're going to break down for all of the people, especially our new listeners. Our listener numbers have just expanded exponentially uh, from two weeks ago to our World Cup preview show. So uh, to all those new people and to uh, even newer listeners who are catching up with us now. Uh, hey there, Phil. Let's go match. Yeah, day welcome one. to
0: the show. No question. Uh, The takeaway for me is Russia was looked at as one of the weaker teams in this field. And I mentioned in the last show that even though they're not very good, they're home, and they were a minus 300 betting favorite. Now, you'd think that upon reciting that, I'd have been smart enough to figure out some way to put some capital on Russia in these first two matches. But I did not figure that out. I'm not very intelligent. I also don't gamble. But looking back... Russia hosting the awful Saudi Arabia team in the opening match of the World Cup was probably the easiest layup wager you'd ever see. They won 5-0. They probably could have won by 10 if they'd had to. And don't you know, they followed that up today by beating Mo Egypt 3-1, and now they have six points through two matches. Of course, they're one of two teams in the entire field that's played two matches so far. Everybody else has only played one. And Russia's on a skate into the knockout round. I predicted this. I just didn't have the
1: heart to back it. It's it's, it's absolutely insane, wasn't it? Funny that one of the uh, the first and maybe the the best lasting moments of the entire tournament so far uh, was after the first Russian goal was scored against Saudi Arabia. Uh, Saudi crown, crown Prince Mohammed bin Sal, uh, Salman is that how you say that? Uh, was shaking hands across Infantino's lap with uh, Russian President Vladimir Putin. I mean, that was that was like straight out of a uh, uh, a James Bond movie, I would think, or maybe something out of The Kingsman. So uh, very interesting. The biggest joke, of course, on social media after that is how much money exchanged hands uh, in that in that uh, little exchange there. But Well, to clarify
0: things, I picked Egypt to come out of this group, and of course they haven't won yet. I did as and well.
1: Yeah, we we I, definitely I, thought that Salah was going to play, and we thought that Salah was going to uh, – we knew that the rest of the team around it wasn't that good, but certainly with, with Saudi Arabia, which we had talked about in the past, really didn't deserve to be in the – Uh, in the World Cup at all, based on their world ranking. Uh, We did not see the way that this was going to play out. So not only is Egypt now winless through two matches,
0: and Salah, look, he went out there and gave it what he had, but what he had wasn't very much. I doubt he'll even play in the third match. They're going to play Saudi Arabia on match day three. There's probably going to be nothing at stake for them. And if you're Salah, you've got to go to the national team people and be like, I got a career to think about here, folks, and I don't want to make my injuries worse by playing a match that doesn't matter and have something fluky happen. I've got a Premier League season to get ready for. I'm hoping to win a Champions League next year. I got to get out of this. It's again, goals change matches and results change tournaments. Egypt, a week ago, was thinking we're going to get out of this group and we're going to try to make a run and hopefully Salah will get healthy. They played two matches, they lost both of them, and now the entire focus has shifted. And whatever, I, I thought they would get out of this group. They're clearly not getting out of this group. Russia is. And as much as I'd like to say that these results that Russia has posted were fluky or not that great, because you can argue that Saudi Arabia is terrible and Egypt with a you know not-quite-fit Salah wasn't really as good as we thought they'd be coming into the tournament. But look, man... Eight aggregate goals and one conceded over two matches, no matter who you're playing in the World Cup, that's nothing to take lightly. They're really good right now. And again, in a short tournament playing at home,
1: maybe they're going to overachieve. And
0: you can't turn your backs on them at this point.
1: Yeah, it it really is uh, just absolutely stunning to see the way. I've been surprised by the way that Russia has played. I feel like they looked like so much more, uh, a much more competent team. Then their world ranking had what were they 70th or were they 67th I don't have the rankings in front of me anymore but um wherever they, they were down they, there for they sure. were they were I believe the lowest or the second lowest lowest-seeded team going into uh to the group stage they just they've played a an aesthetically pleasing style I guess I would say and overall you know they they've just um they I, I don't know if it's they're punching above their weight I don't know if it's just that they're riding the home crowd if You know it it wouldn't be surprising to see a team kind of collapse under the enormous pressure of being the host nation right like we saw it with brazil in the past and you know hats off to to russia and to their coaching staff on you know kind of getting them to live in the moment and to not have the moment become too big for them it's it's been something really remarkable to see and you know uh, obviously i guess we expect that uruguay is going to go through uh, on the other side but saudi arabia again Never had a shot. They probably will go winless in this group. Um, When it comes to Salah, I I think it's a little bit of a toss-up, and and this is why. So he's got a shoulder injury, right? And a lot of people didn't think that he was going to play at all. There were questions when he was taken out by Ramos in the Champions League final that we would even see him in this World Cup. And while I understand what you're saying about him needing to think about what's best for his career, what's best for his future, uh, for his club, Liverpool, there is part of me that thinks... You know, life is is pretty uh, fragile, right? And your career as a player, you can't uh, obviously, at, at, even in his case right now with this uh, shoulder injury, you can't guarantee that you're going to be healthy. You can't guarantee that you're going to be in the form that you were in prior to this World Cup. And ultimately, you you just can't guarantee yourself another World Cup cycle. So, I think part of those those kind of factors have to weigh on Salah. And and for that matter, anybody who's in this tournament, if you're playing through an injury, yes. There's definitely potential financial ramifications or repercussions that you could feel if you get yourself further injured or, or, God forbid, have your career ended. But this isn't a need that we're talking about. It's a shoulder. And if I'm Salah, I really do have to let, you know, I, I have to have these things kind of go through my head. I don't know if Egypt is going to be able to qualify for the next World Cup. Now, 2026, when everything's out there and the field expands to 48 teams, then, yeah, I, I would assume that they would have a shot. But at that point, Salah is going to be <laughs> quite a bit older. Uh, I don't know if he would be the guy to, you know, kind of usher in the next generation of, of Egyptian players, but I've got to think that for a guy like Salah, you you kind of have to consider that this might be your only World Cup appearance. And with all of that in mind, you know, yeah, you want to perform at the club level. You want to be able to get the biggest payday, but ultimately you want to represent your nation. And if you were gutsy enough to come back and to try to make it into this second match, um, I've, I've got to think that. Going up against the Saudi Arabian team that you should absolutely demolish, I, I would. If if I'm Salah, I really have to think about it, and I wouldn't be surprised to see him play, to be honest.
0: If Salah scores four goals against Saudi Arabia in a match that doesn't matter, who, rem- who remembers it? What meaning does it have?
1: I think it. None. I think it matters to him, and I think ultimately it kind of matters to his legacy in Egyptian soccer. To be honest, like I, I do think that uh, every young Egyptian kid who's looking up to Salah, which we talked about in the past. You know, he's this, uh, I, I don't know, he's like the, the face of soccer in that nation. And so, you know, will we think about it? No, absolutely not. But will a young kid in Egypt right now who's considering playing the game or is watching, you know, his hero, uh, either in the Egyptian kit or in his Liverpool kit, uh, you know, sitting at home watching this World Cup, is that kid going to remember a 4-0 result? Yeah, I think I think they would. So, well, that's not fair. I, kids aren't cynical like me. Now you got to go and drag kids into this. See that? See what I did? No, but honestly, like I, I, I do think that there's there's something like that at play here. Now, if, if Salah doesn't end up playing, or if word gets out that he kind of went against Doctor's Orders and playing in the second match, and the Egyptian Federation just isn't comfortable with him playing, then fine. Um, and if it even comes out that he's worried about you know, further injury and not being ready for Liverpool's season or whatever, I don't think anybody could fault him. But I really do think that uh, to a guy like him, for as important as he is to his nation, I, I just can't imagine a scenario where he doesn't play. But that's just me. I hope he does play. Well, and just to close the loop on this group, so assuming Uruguay... That was a good rhyme, by the way, Phil.
0: Yeah, I'm working
1: on that. It's not hard to spell. It's Phil Kaidel.
0: Go ahead. Assuming Uruguay does the business and beats Saudi Arabia in this next round, that sets a really interesting match in match day three in this group. Uruguay and Russia, uh, playing essentially to see who wins the group at that point. Now, of course, Russia has all those goals, so Uruguay will need to win the match to win the group, you would assume, unless they hang a big number on Saudi Arabian match day two. But the point being, we'll find out pretty quickly whether this burst of goals from Russia and this incisive play that they've been demonstrating against pretty bad competition is a real thing or a mirage, because Cutting open Uruguay is not going to be the same thing as beating up on Saudi Arabia or this toothless Egypt side they played today. So that bears watching.
1: Were you at all surprised by the way that Uruguay played? I just think that overall, I expected a more dominant performance, to be honest. Um, I just kind of think that when you look at the quality that Uruguay has up front, I certainly would have expected uh, La Celeste to to um, you know come out with a more convincing victory. Statistics I, can the, be a little misleading, but yeah.
0: they outshot Egypt 15-8. to They outpossessed them 59 to 41. Egypt fouled twice as often 12 to 6. Um, Uruguay earned five corners to none for Egypt. I would argue again goals change matches and results change tournaments. This was match day one where Egypt and Uruguay played and everything was still to play for for both sides. If Egypt had held on and gotten a point out of this match instead of conceding the 89th minute obviously all of our conversations with reference to Group A would change. Um, Uruguay got their result. They scored the goal. They got their three points, and they really put Egypt in a position where when they lost to Russia, they're essentially, at, well, they are out of the tournament. But no, I, I don't, I'm do not i not that surprised. Remember, it's well, I- Group A. They're playing in the earliest of the match days. Um, they've just seen Russia hang a huge number on Saudi Arabia. And so now both of these Nations were thinking, man, this is a must-have, but we really can't lose. And I think both nations played that way for the better part of this match.
1: Yeah, I guess it, part of it is just when you look at the kind of talent that that Uruguay has up front with Suarez and, and Cavani, you would expect that their quality would be a little bit better. And Suarez I think, was awful, though. Yeah,
0: I mean that's what it came down to. I mean, I thought you were going to lead with that. Suarez had two or three really good chances that he scuffed. I'm not going to say that he wasn't. He maybe cared too much. But a few of the times that he missed the chances he was given, he looked somewhere between in disbelief or what just happened, or I guess I don't really care about that because I'll get another chance down the line and I'll score that one. But uh, bemused, I guess, would be the best word I could use. But it didn't look like the normal Suarez who is on that razor's edge.
1: No, I guess he uh, he just couldn't find any good meat to bite into. Um, a couple facts on our way out of, uh, of Group A. Uruguay um, has... Uh, they, they won their opening match at the World Cup for the first time since 1970 when they beat Israel, and um, Jose Jimenez's uh, goal in the 90th minute was Uruguay's latest winning goal in a World Cup match since Daniel Fonseca's 92nd minute winner against South Korea in 1990. So Uruguay um, certainly has themselves in good position to move on, and obviously by virtue of uh, Egypt's result. Uh, as a, as we're recording this today, certainly look like they are in the driver's seat to uh, to move through with Russia. I would hope that Cavani and Suarez are able to get things together. They're certainly not going to be a team that's going to threaten to uh, win the whole thing. But again, they've got the finishing ability up front. Uh, I'll be interested to see whoever they match up with in the knockout stage and to see if they're able to right that ship. Let's move on to Group B. Group B, somewhat interesting, I suppose, right? I don't really want to talk
0: about this, but go ahead.
1: It is a great, great day when you can say that you're a fan of Cristiano Ronaldo. Well, what are you and so excited about? The, the Portugal's whoa, whoa, whoa. not even leading
0: the group. Iran's That's, leading whoa, the group.
1: Whoa, whoa, Phil, Phil. Portugal and Spain played easily the best match of group or of match day one, right? No question. And it was a game that when we talked about how is Fox going to be able to market this World Cup. To an American audience that doesn't have the national team, that doesn't have certain uh, key cogs, I guess, in the international game, including the Italys of the world, or Chile, or Denmark, or uh, not Denmark, or the Netherlands. How exactly do you market this? Well, you put up a massive match between a favorite in Spain and arguably the best player in the world in Cristiano Ronaldo, and the match lived up to the hype. Now, obviously, one of the first things that happens in the match is Ronaldo, uh, some will argue, took a dive. There was some contact. I think you could have overruled uh, the, the penalty call. But Ronaldo goes up to the spot. He finishes. Life is good, right? And throughout this match, it felt like at any given point, Portugal could have found the breakthrough to really bust this game open. But, of course, the talent that Spain brings to the table... The professionalism, the we've been there, we've done that attitude, continue to rear its head. And it made what I think was one of the most entertaining matches, not only for somebody who knows what they're watching, but for the casual fan. It felt like a a high-speed death machine kind of performance uh, by both clubs. And just when it felt like Spain had broken the game open, especially with that Nacho score. I mean, they had two goals within, what was it, seven minutes, where Nacho hits that laser to put Spain up three to two. It really felt like uh, we were going to be in a scenario that um, you were going to be able to boast that Ronaldo did not come through in the big moment when it all mattered. And I just had to kind of close my eyes, cross my fingers and hope that Cristiano would be able to lift this Portuguese team onto his back. And he did that once again. And the final goal that he had on that set piece was vintage Ronaldo. But honestly, as a Real Madrid supporter, is not something that we have seen very often in the last three years. And that being him executing properly on a set piece. And not only did he execute on it, but it was it was to pure perfection. Five inches under the crossbar, upper 90. It was a thing of beauty. And, you know, when you walk away from that match, you know, if you're Portugal, you have to feel like you let it get away. You had a 1-0, a 1-0 lead. You had a 2-1 lead. And ultimately, you finished with a 3-3 tie coming back from down uh, 3-2. to you have to feel good about it, especially knowing that Spain was such a favorite, but you know, it did slip away, and um, you know, it. I think it's one of the better matches I've seen in the last couple of World Cup cycles. What were your takeaways, other than the fact that I was going to be insufferable about Ronaldo?
0: What was my takeaway? Well, there's only one takeaway, so I'm watching this match, and Spain gets to 3-2, and I'm just sitting there watching the end of the match and thinking, this is fantastic. It's the exact result that Ronaldo loves. He scores a brace and they lose. And now he has the opportunity to blame everybody but himself and bring all the attention to himself and say, look at me, woe is me. If I had any teammates, we would have won, but we didn't. And now I'm going to, I guess I'll have to score three next time. Ha, ha, ha. And we roll on. And then Spain commits a foul and it's a free kick right outside the box. And I'm telling you, if you had been sitting there watching the match with me, I was just praying, praying that <laughs> someone else would take it, first of all, but I knew that wouldn't happen. And then Ronaldo grabs the ball and he puts it down and I'm like, well, oh, it's not that easy, and he's not that great at free kicks. So maybe I'll dodge it just this one time. Just this one time. I won't be made a chump by CR seven and Russ. And yeah, it didn't C- work. Russ out Russ seven? Me because he rippled he rippled the net, the old onion bag and it was 3-3, and I knew, I just knew that that was the last goal of the match, that that's a result that Ronaldo creates entirely out of whole cloth and all by himself, effectively, and we were going to have to talk about it on the show, and I'd have nothing to say other than it broke my heart.
1: Diego Costa, I don't want to say that somebody's ugly, but Diego Costa is not a good-looking man by any stretch, but man, does he have one good-looking move, and that was that uh, the goal that he... Gave a bit of a forearm shiver to the face of uh, Pepe. Poor Pepe. Felt so bad for Pepe. We, I think we talked about him going into the cup. That, you know, it's not a good situation if you're Portugal. And one of your starting center backs is, uh, is poor Pepe. Anyway, Pepe gets smashed in the face with a forearm. It goes to uh, VAR review, which we'll be coming back around to later. Uh, a lot of stuff to talk about with VAR. And ultimately, Costa's goal stands and it was a great inside out move multiple times between multiple defenders uh, to go to far post. I mean, it, it was a clinical strike and it was something that, you know, it was something that Atletico Madrid fans have been able to see in the past. And obviously when Chelsea was good with Costa before falling out with the manager again, uh, it, it's something that we've kind of come to expect from Costa when he's in good form. And it is a, uh, a fantastic strike by one of the world's best strikers when motivated.
0: Two points on Costa. First of all, He's ugly if he's playing against you. If he's on your team, he's ruggedly handsome. Uh, secondly, ugly or handsome, he is a perfect villain. His face is villainous. Yeah. His features are forbidding. He looks terrifying if he's playing against you. And the way he behaves often is villainous. And he embraces that role. I'm not sure he's a bad guy. I don't know nothing about the man personally. But when you watch him play, he soaks that roll up and he takes that attention and he feeds off the negative attention of the crowd the negative energy of the crowd if certainly if he's playing on the road and he's gonna stick
1: the ball in the net and he's gonna show you his face and if you don't like his face that's your problem because he scored again I mean it's it's kind of the uh the ultimate uh what is it the dichotomy between the two teams you've got the beautiful Cristiano Ronaldo stepping up and you know uh, scoring off of set pieces and then obviously one's from the run of play and you've got Tico Costa who uh I, I'm trying to think what he looks like. It He kind of looks like, um, there's a Toy Story 3 where they've got the big purple uh, teddy bear that's, you know, evil. Spoiler alert. I don't know if he looks like Basically a, any
0: mustache-wearing like villain, Costa fits that role.
1: Yeah, I don't know. Um, anyway... By the way, did you see that they uh,
0: removed the Bob's Big Boy statue of Ronaldo and finally replaced it with something that looks a
1: little like him? At the Madeira airport? That's correct. Was that the one that uh that the guy was recommissioned to do? That we talked correct. about this weeks ago. Yes, that, it's been replaced. Okay. So I'm guessing it was with his uh his uh second attempt. Bleach report did a whole so. feature on it uh, a while back, but the, the last one was an F minus. I'll give this one a solid B. What happened to the F minus? That's what I want to know. Like where did it go? Bob's big boy. It's out front. What? You you can get a milkshake, you can get a burger and some French
0: fries and some onion rings and you can Pat the old Ronaldo statue on the head. Milkshake and some onion rings
1: sounds sounds great right about now. So yeah, no, I, I don't know where
0: that statue actually went. It should be melted down.
1: One of the biggest storylines, I guess, on Twitter, one of the biggest Twitter outrages that happened um, after it was announced that Cristiano Ronaldo, and by scoring the uh, the hat trick against Spain, became the quote unquote first player in history to score in eight consecutive major tournaments, including the World Cup, Euro, Championships, and. Uh, um, I think it was Copa America. There was something else. Um, there was a, a big Twitter controversy because uh, Asamoah Gayan, I hope I said that right, from Ghana, um, had actually scored in nine consecutive tournaments. And one of the things that they hadn't considered was the, uh, I think it was the African Nations, Cup of Cup Nations. Of nations. Um, and so it, it like, kind of sparked this big back and forth and big outrage. I'd seen on Twitter that there were, uh, I guess, some... Journalists who are based in Africa, who I guess are of African roots, who were more than outraged that not only had they been felt like uh, Guyane was shown massive disrespect by not being included in that statistic, but furthermore, uh, there were multiple reporters who were offended by the concept that um, national talking heads, especially in the U.S., had gone into the tournament saying that a lot of the African nations didn't belong Uh, And it was, it was, it was a a lot of stuff that, you know, we try not to get political on the show. And so we won't in this instance, but it was an interesting bit of social commentary. And it kind of felt like, you know, in a sense, if Guyane really did score nine consecutive tournaments, which he did, um, then it kind of seemed like it might have been a massive uh, blunder in coverage, not only by Fox Sports, by but by whoever was putting together uh, graphics packages, anybody who was doing uh, research ahead of time, you know, going into games. So it's uh, it's interesting. You know, maybe it's an oversight because we don't, you know, in the States at least, don't have much of a working knowledge about the uh, African Cup of Nations or whatever. But, um, you know, I guess it wasn't to take anything away from Ronaldo, but I guess technically he wasn't the first one to score in eight major consecutive uh, championships. I don't know. And again, we don't
0: skew political, but if you're asking me to be surprised that Fox Sports, of all networks, would slight the Africa Cup of Nations, I just can't be surprised. I can't help you there.
1: Probably the biggest surprise is the fact that Iran are currently leading Group B.
0: Yeah, but that's fluky. Look, they beat Morocco, and Portugal and Spain faced off. And Portugal and Spain are not heartbroken to get a point each out of their match, because now they get to feast on Iran and Morocco, the rest of the group. I, I don't think we're going to see much of Iran doing much uh, after their win against Morocco. I hope they enjoyed it.
1: We still have to assume that Portugal and Spain are going to go through.
0: Very safely, yes. Yeah.
1: That was Iran's uh, first win, I believe, right, in a World Cup since they downed the U.S. men's national team in, what was it, 1998? The uh, podcast that, that, that you and I are listening to, uh, American American Fiasco. Fiasco. Roger Bennett, fantastic. We've been texting back and forth about it, so if you haven't checked that out, go uh Go listen to that. Uh, Group C, as we move on, France, which uh, VAR comes up again. Um, France gets by Australia 2 1. Denmark beat Peru 1 0. France, you know, when we were talking about uh, Group C as we were previewing, you know, we mentioned the fact that a French squad that featured all of their starters, featured what we expected was going to be the starting 11 for match day one, had gone out at home and nearly lost to the United States, featuring a team of 18, 19, and, like, 23-year-olds. We kind of figured that they didn't look like they were uh, uh, doing much more than going through the motions, and we had both argued that it would not only seem like it was tactically stupid by the manager to uh, roll out his starters and to risk injury, but that the result of, you know, I guess, like, the psychological result of seeing a 1-1 draw at home as you're getting ready to go into a world cup where you thought that the u.s would roll out a young team that you'd be able to you know take care of handily uh it looks like it kind of um may have at least in some some way shape or form kind of leaked over into this world cup uh and this first match against australia was was strange and as i mentioned before uh var was used it was the first time that um var led to a penalty and uh it was a, a moment where Antoine Griezmann was taken down from behind and uh, ultimately was awarded a penalty. And uh, I believe it was the first goal of the match was scored, put them yes, up 1-0, one, one and they went on to win that 2-1. So um, I, I guess a few things to take away from that match, anything stand out that you didn't expect about France in this match, or I guess on the flip side of that, anything from the, uh, the Aussies down under.
0: I would actually argue that France drew a bad break by playing Australia first and that doesn't make a lot of sense on its face because Australia is the worst of the three possible opponents that France would face in this group. But here's the thing, you know Australia is going to gum it up, they're going to make it ugly, they're going to sit back, they're not going to try and run with you if you're France, they're too smart for that. So they committed 19 fouls, France committed 16 fouls, the possession was almost even. France only got five shots on target the entire match. They only had five corners. This was a situation where France would have been much happier, much happier playing Denmark or Peru, teams that were, relatively speaking, comparatively skillful, that they could play their normal game against and show what they have. Australia wasn't going to let them do that. And for the most part, they didn't let them do that. As you pointed out, it was a second-half VAR-assisted penalty that led to France's first goal, France's second goal was an own goal by Australia. So yes, France was frustrated by this, but I would argue that this was not the matchup they would have preferred. They're probably really happy to be through it because now, even though they're playing more talented opposition in Denmark and Peru, they will be able to, with those three points uh, under their belts, go out and play the way they want to play and trust that it's not going to get as Physical, chippy, and otherwise difficult as it was against Australia.
1: As I said in our first show, obviously this French team is exponentially more talented, player for player, uh, individual talent at least, uh, as you go kind of across the board looking at them versus the rest of their group. And when you kind of look at this Peru, this Peruvian team, I believe I picked them to go through. Um, they certainly did not look like a team uh, who was ready for the moment. Denmark, um, you know, gets the one nil victory in their match. Um, and I, yeah, I, guess I had Denmark, I, and I, I certainly did not. So it looks like you're going to end up winning this bet. Um, Peru in their last seven world cup games are winless. They have two draws and five ties, or I'm sorry, two draws and five losses. God, it's late. Um, and one of the other things, um, it's an arbitrary stat. It doesn't really mean anything, but, uh, Denmark has won three of their four world cup matches against South American opponents. So, uh, that's another fun little stat for you. Um, this Denmark team looked okay there wasn't anything that was really outstanding about how they played or what they did and ultimately it was a a match that I don't think really had that much intrigue and as we go forward now it's just going to kind of be like you know between Denmark and Peru because you would assume that these are the two teams that if if either are going to have a chance and obviously we assume that it's more likely at least I would assume it's more likely that a Denmark or Peru are going to get through than an Australia now at this point it kind of I guess maybe the best thing to think of is, you know, what's the result that you can get against France? Now, obviously, I think if you're Denmark or Peru, you've got to bunker, 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 and try to get the point. I don't think you can go for broke against France. Maybe you play the counter. And I think this is going to be a thing that's going to happen in a bunch of these groups. But you've got to try to steal a point against the best team in the group and go out and, you know, win your final match against uh, whoever it is that you're you're paired up against. And I don't know what this is going to look like. I don't really see much of a way that Peru is going to be able to overcome this. You would have to assume that Denmark is going to, uh, if nothing else, walk out of their next two matches with a draw. That'll get them on five points. Peru would then at some point need to win a match. And, you know, they're obviously, I I, I would say obviously, not going to beat France. So then can Peru beat Australia? I don't know. i am not I'm not Come too convinced. And I would think that Australia's effort in this first match against France is going to have them kind of battle hardened at least a bit. And I would assume that Australia could put up a uh, a good enough fight that maybe this is another draw. So Denmark certainly is in the driver's seat, uh, controlling their own fate to move on. Well, not to be difficult,
0: not to be difficult, and not to expressly disagree with you without uh, warning you first. But match day, (laughs) there you go. Match day two of three uh, is coming up, uh, June twenty first, and Denmark is playing Australia first. And Denmark, of course, is going to be favored in that match. If they get the three points after they've already beaten Peru, that's six. Yeah, that's over. So now, three hours later, Peru takes on France. And a point ain't going to be good enough at that point. Peru needs to go out and, you know, hell bent for leather, try and score four, uh, and hope that France turtles after giving up too quickly. Because, um, yeah,
1: if Denmark beats Australia, Peru is really under it at that point. Yeah, you're right. You're right, Phil. You're right. You're right. That's not being uh, disagreeing. Let's not get the, that's not let's not let the facts get out of the way. No, you're right. Yeah. yeah the, the Facts are always a problem schedule. for you. Yeah. The facts are always a problem. Whoa, whoa, whoa. For you. I just choose the facts that are uh, beneficial to my uh, to my point.
0: Why don't you talk about Cristiano Ronaldo again?
1: Let me tell you something about Cristiano, man. That For a guy that's called Pinaldo, he went and scored one from the run of play and then a beautiful free kick. And uh, okay, all delightful. right, fine. Uh, let's move on. Peru's out. <laughs>
0: that's my that's my take on this. Peru is done. Are you sad? Moving on. Group B. Are, are you sad at all?
1: Of course not, because you didn't pick it, them. I'm the idiot Denmark. who picked them.
0: I picked Denmark. Well, you'll have plenty of chances when we get to South Korea later. So let's just move on to Group D.
1: <laughs> I forgot about that. Oh, this is going to be beautiful. All right, Group D. Uh, group D, Croatia, uh, leads the group after beating Nigeria 2-0. And um, I don't want to put you in this position, Phil, because I put you in this position You didn't position have a to lot. wait very long.
0: You didn't have to wait very long to put me Argentina, in there. Argentina. Here you go. Let's have so
1: it. So Argentina goes out a day after Cristiano Ronaldo's heroics against Spain. And Lionel Messi, little Leo, the guy who likes to retire after every international appearance he makes, goes out and, you know, there were a lot of people saying, hey, you know, this is going to be just like Champions, this is going to be just like La Liga. Ronaldo goes out and scores a hat trick, Messi has to score four. Messi goes out and scores a hat trick, Ronaldo has to score five. This is how these things typically work with these two. And after the last show, I really reflected on all that you said. And you know, part of what it seemed like your argument was, and I I think I might need clarification on this. It seemed like your argument, at least in the past, when it comes to these two international teams, Portugal and Argentina has been that Portugal has been a better side, a more talented side. And when you look at this Argentine team, or at least when I, I looked at it going into this tournament, the finishing is there. The midfield is a massive question mark, massive. The defensive line is iffy. And I said before, they're, their goalkeeper is not world-class. But when I look at this uh, this team's inability to score, especially in their match, and you know, I guess to some extent, a lot of that was kind of exacerbated by the fact that Messi not only wasn't able to net a penalty, but at the end of the game, when they, uh, what was it, a 21-yard, I believe, free kick came up at the end of the match, was it like the 85th minute? You and I were texting back and forth frantically. It was a a moment that you thought it should have been, what, Sergio Aguero's shot. Messi calls him off, and Messi ends up uh, putting it, I believe, over the bar. No, into the wall. He did it twice in that match. Smashed the ball into the wall. I don't know if it's because he's too short. Just couldn't see over them. I'm not really sure. Now I'm just trying to be incendiary. Um, A little bit. This this Argentine team, man, they've got all the finishing quality in the world, and I, I have questions for the manager about substitutions that were made late in the game, about the initial lineup that I want to kind of break down. But other than Messi coming up small once again on the international stage, what did you see in this matchup that uh, was either surprising or not so much? And obviously we have to kind of focus in on their opponent, Iceland, in all of this.
0: Well, Ronaldo, Messi, that debate takes yet another dark turn for Messi. And again, you've pushed me into this corner. I never wanted to be here. But here I am. Messi misses that penalty. And again, I'm watching the match... And thinking, oh, God, Messi, please bury this penalty so I don't have to listen to Russ. Of course, he misses it. Uh, He at least put it on target, but it wasn't a very good penalty. I was actually, in the course of watching that match, thinking that Aguero should have taken that penalty because he'd already scored in the match, and that's what he does for Man City. But they give it to Messi, he missed, and here we are. 1-1 against Iceland is not nearly good enough for Argentina they have it all to play for against Croatia because Croatia is no joke and has a really good chance of coming out of this group after beating Nigeria the way they did. And, you know, heaven help Leo Messi and Argentina if they lose to Croatia because it's going to be an ugly remainder of the tournament even if they win their third match. Uh, Especially with Iceland out there not going away. Uh, Iceland is going to be favored against Nigeria and this group while I never really thought of it as a group of death, uh, really could come down to goal difference and could come down to the third match day. And it really could be messy in Argentina going home. And I never saw that happening. Man, if it happens that way, that's some recriminations and some sadness. And you're going to make the joke that he'll announce his retirement from international football for the 48th time. He probably will. Um, but it will also probably impel him to think about 2022 because you know eventually he'll keep playing this tournament until he physically can't anymore or until they don't pick him <sighs>
1: okay so uh, i have you to... want a cigarette i was just about to interrupt to you and i was gonna say well you know when argentina goes out for their next match uh you know and and lose which i don't actually know if they will but um when they go out against Croatia, if they happen to lose that match, will Messi uh, call it a career after uh, after game two? Will he even show up for game three? But um, anyway, this Argentina-Croatia matchup that we're going to be kind of treated to is going to be interesting. I I do want to talk about one of the things that I think was kind of underrated. And I think a lot of people who were, as, as we were leading up to this, to match day one, I think people knew going into it that Iceland was going to play... Stylistically, in a way that was going to look to kind of shut down the uh, the Argentine attack. And when I kind of when I went to look at the lineup um, as it was set up by by their manager, there were a couple things that I I found concerning on the Argentine squad. So they started Aguero, Meza, Messi, and Di Maria, right? Um, when you look at this lineup, there was such a gaping hole in the midfield. It felt like at no point could Argentina. Um, really connect passes from the midfield uh, into the attack. And a lot of times it just kind of felt like for as much as Iceland would sit back and continue to take on a barrage of shots or um, concede possession to a talented Argentina squad, it always felt like when Argentina was able to step up on the counter, they had all the, the space in the world to attack whether that was attacking players like Messi and Aguero and Di Maria getting too far up the pitch, or if it was just the fact that Mascherano uh, looked kind of out of his depth uh, at, at times in this match. It just felt like when Iceland finally did decide to move forward and move that Viking ship forward and out of their own box, it really did feel like they could control the entire field. And at some point, you know, I thought Argentina was going to make some kind of a tactical change. I definitely thought that later in that match, you kind of had to go for broke, and I was absolutely beside myself that we did not see uh, uh, Paulo Dybala. And it's something that I, I just can't conceptualize. So when, when we were talking about... Uh, God,
0: you love Dybala. You just can't let it go. I like
1: Dybala a lot, and I think that Dybala would have added a uh, another layer to that attack. Uh, I think that his work rate would have been... High enough that I think he could have created some dangerous opportunities, and and yeah, like at the end of the match when you need somebody on a set piece, I do think that Dybala would have given you at least a uh, a good enough misdirect for the uh, the Icelandic defense to have to kind of shade his way. Uh, it wouldn't have been as as clear cut um, as as knowing that Messi was going to take that shot. Now, obviously, they bring right. in Gonzalo Higuain. Um, there there were just I, I thought I thought tactically the manager made. Uh, Sampaoli made some questionable calls. And, you know, we talked about this, I think, two episodes ago. I think it was, uh, it was Javi. Javi, I think, was the one who said a few weeks ago that if Messi ever converted into a defensive midfielder, he would be the best in the world. And I have to start wondering, because of the gaping hole that it appears it, it currently exists in the Argentine midfield. If I'm the manager of Argentina, do I want to have Messi in a position where he's involved in the attack? Absolutely. But if I'm looking at this midfield and the way that the team is constructed, I have to think that maybe I move this team into a 4-4-2. I play Aguero up top. You can either start Higuain or you can start Dybala, whomever. But I have to think about dropping Messi deeper into play. I think Messi's ability as a playmaker and as somebody who can get forward but then is also not a defensive liability. He's a guy who... Uh, I believe would be able to get back and you know control that midfield enough. He can cover enough ground uh, to kind of do the work rate of two guys. I I would have to consider it, and I Here know are, that here's I know... my
0: counters. Go ahead. Here's my counters. I can't take it anymore. This might be our last show, honestly, because what you are proposing is turning Lionel Messi into Michael freaking Bradley. Stop. And having deeping sitting deep and trying to orchestrate play from a quasi defensive midfield position that's disgusting. Why? Now, you might not think you might not think Messi is as good as he used to be and you certainly might not think he's as good as Ronaldo, but to suggest that at this point in his career just because one dude said it would be a good idea to have Lionel Messi play a six role, no, I'm not having it. Look, obviously if Messi played the Michael Bradley role, he'd be the best in the world at it because that's where you put guys who aren't very good. Oh stop! Messi is still, stop. still not just elite, above elite, beyond elite, into the stratosphere elite. But Phil, it doesn't so, do a damn
1: bit of good if you can't finish. He, I mean he he blew it on the PK. He blew it on a set piece, and ultimately he he didn't do a good enough job in the final third to either be able to execute the final shot to finish himself. Or to set his team up in position to get guys in the best position to be able to finish. Now, granted... Acting
0: like they uh, lost 3-1. They they drew 1-1. And if he makes the with, penalty, we're not having Icelandic this conversation. With an Icelandic team that sat back the whole match. Like, I, I get it. But well, you that's don't have... Ha- you put it in a 4-2-3-1. Because you know they're going to sit back. And you attack them. And you put Messi right behind Aguero. Which, by the way, led to Aguero scoring. And, by the way, Messi created the penalty that was awarded with a beautiful... And delivery that he missed, missed, but it was a beautiful delivery, and it could well have been a goal but for the fact that Iceland fouled in the box. Again, like, (laughs) such an overreaction to suggest that Messi should now drop back.
1: No, it's not time for Messi to drop back. I don't think Argentina has the personnel right now to control the midfield. And as you move forward in this tournament, if you're lucky enough to be able to advance, you are not going to be able to control a game in the midfield with the lineup that you ran out. You're just not going to be able to. It's a moment that plenty of managers have to kind of come to that realization throughout World Cups. It happened to Italy in the last World Cup. They realized that their back line was too slow, too old, and they had to make changes or, you know, die on that on that hill, which they ultimately did. This is a situation where I think Argentina might need to kind of look at a, a slightly more radical plan. You have so much attacking talent sitting on that bench that you could theoretically uh, get on the field and move Messi. You know, it. I'm not okay. Let me kind of reset this. Can you hear me shaking my head at you? Yeah, I can. I can. Tell me how Javier Mascherano is supposed to control the midfield. I mean, because if if you're not, if you're going to put out the attacking talent, you did, and you're hoping that you're going to be able to put three, four in the back of the net, and all you're able to muster in this game is is one. Uh, it might be able to get you out of this group. Maybe. I don't know. If, I don't know if they'll be able to move on. But as you move into the knockout stage you're not going to be able to put up three or four goals if you're losing every midfield battle. Because you're going to be running Cavani ragged, assuming that he's able or willing to get back defensively. You're going to run Aguero into the ground. And Aguero, who, by the way, uh, as you should know, has had a, a few, what was it, hamstring injuries in the past. Uh, he's certainly not a guy that I think you could rely on to have uh, tracking back defensively without fear of of injury. Uh, Mesa, I thought, played a, a decent enough game. But, like, Belia, like, what... There, it just it it doesn't make sense to me when you've got guys like Iguain and Tibala on the bench. At least Iguain has the track record, the the true the proven track record of veteran presence at both the club and the international level. He should be in this match, and I don't think you pull Aguero right. Like that would be stupid to me. There's no reason to pull Aguero. So if you're gonna bring Iguain in, you've got to pull one of these other guys out. Maybe it's Mesa. I don't know. But if you do, then you have to get out of this four-two-three-one. Mentality. You've got to switch into something like a four four two. It it just doesn't make sense. Or you could go with a four three three, I guess. I don't know. I don't know if I why don't would Why don't you just don't go full it.
0: Russ at this point? No, really. Why don't you just go full Russ and suggest that they should actually sit Messi? No, that's and play obviously Mario no. and Aguero and <sighs> Benega and Igain and DiBala. If that's what you really want, you can have it. Look, if I'm Argentina's manager, it doesn't take a genius, and I'm certainly no genius, to say, I'm going to play Lino Messi one of the, what, three greatest players in the history of the sport in a creative and attacking role, and I'm going to live and die with the results.
1: Obviously. Well, then you're going to die a one, pretty fast a... death
0: because it's they where they're going. Yeah, the other... they should have beaten Iceland. Well, Should have, could have, should have. They didn't. Penalty kicks are missed. These things happen. The bottom line is... Not to is... the best player in the world, they don't. Oh, geez. Well, all right. Listen, we'll see how it goes. I mistakenly said during our last show that... Uh, Ronaldo was a passenger during Portugal's 2014 World Cup win, which, of course, was erroneous on many levels. What I meant to say was that Ronaldo was a passenger in Portugal's 2016 Euro win. Mm-hmm. That's what happens it's to true. great players sometimes. They get carried by teammates. Yep. I don't think Messi's teammates did anything to carry him in this match, and you're blaming on him. When in
1: fact... No, you, I, I honestly, Phil, as much as I like to give crap uh, to Messi... Um, I really do think that was a tactical butcher job. I don't know what, what role Mesa plays in this. And I, I just think that, you know, knowing that Iceland was gonna sit back like they were, four two three one's fine, but four two three one also kinda gives you a lot more latitude to uh to take risks because you've you've got, you know, two guys sitting in front of your back four. And I think it's more of a defensive um setup than I would have expected from them. Um
0: Well and the assumption is that Messi's gonna control the ball a lot and demand a lot of respect, which which Iceland didn't,
1: you know, credit to
0: Iceland. No, they, they actually challenged him and they challenged Argentina's midfield and they won their share of battles, which I'm not sure Argentina was thinking was going to happen. I thought they believed that on talent, they were so much better than Iceland that they'd break them down relatively quickly. That's not what happened. As I often say to my son, when he complains that a sporting result doesn't go the way he wants it to, the other guys are trying to win too. Iceland was trying to win as well, and they played really well. They still should have lost the match based on the fact that Messi misses a penalty kick. And obviously, if Messi makes that kick, we're having a different discussion. Yep. But I don't think that you then overreact and suggest that Messi should sit back in the six and distribute and you know clean the line in front of the
1: back four. My God, what a waste of his talent. All right, so here's what I want Argentina to do in the next match. Run a 4-3-3. Put Dybala and Aguero on the flanks, put Iguain up top, and then let Messi, Messi sit back somewhere in the midfield, right? He can be creative. They can develop a game plan where he's going to try to control the midfield in the next match, and we'll see if it works. I just think that he's going to run himself ragged. Which of these top three that you're suggesting that Argentina should run out in their next match have been heroes
0: in the Argentine national team history?
1: None of them have. Yeah, there you go. Well, You Messi, just answered your own question. But, but neither has Messi. And he's the best player in the world. He's the best
0: overall player in the world. But this is my point. You have to give the best overall player in the world more opportunities rather than putting in the hands of for Christ's sake Aguero or Debala or God forbid Aguin. You got to be kidding me. Let's move on.
1: All right. I died on on the inside a little bit. Uh all right. Group E. Whoo. Rupee, Serbia, Costa Rica. Uh, Serbia comes out with uh, what I think we both would have considered a shocking 1-0 victory. Um, Costa Rica just did not look right in this match. And Serbia, uh, to their credit, played a a much better match than I think either of us would have given them credit for. so Costa Rica is kind of in a, a slightly bad spot, and then of course we have to come back around to uh, Brazil and, and Switzerland. Costa
0: which... Rica are flat screwed, and of course I picked Costa Rica to get out of this group, which makes me again the chump in this I think discussion.
1: I, I think I did too. You I, may have, but I, I was very I insistent.
0: Down. I was very insistent on the Tico's getting through because I thought they had the swagger and I thought they had the belief in themselves and the you know unfounded arrogance to get out of this. And you're right, they didn't look the same as they looked in the last World Cup. They didn't look the way they looked in CONCACAF qualifying. They got beat by an Alexander Kolarov strike. Let me tell you something. If you get beat by Kolarov hitting uh, a goal past you, first of all, you deserve to lose, and secondly, it's an indictment of your whole team. Man.
1: You're swinging for the fences on that one, aren't you? The breeze is coming out of the East right now. I'm a little salty. <sighs> Poor Kolarov. Poor guy. You know, he uh, he wins a game. It's it's good. He wins a game for uh, for Serbia. Good. Let's move um, on to Brazil and Switzerland. Yeah, Brazil Switzerland. One so one draw. Some interesting things, especially the fact that Brazil um, afterwards. And again, we're going to come back to VAR at the end of this uh, this episode. But Brazil had a, uh, I guess, a few issues uh, with the way that this game was officiated. Um, Brazil believed that the Swiss goal should not have been allowed. Um, they had claimed that uh, one of the Swiss players had held a uh, Brazilian offensive or a defensive player and believed that upon review it should have been called back uh, that being the tying Switzerland goal it uh, I believe did go to VAR they ultimately chose to allow the goal to stand and we had a 1-1 draw not only did Brazil come out with a disappointing result in this but again as of recording today today's Tuesday um, the note out of training was that Neymar got injured in practice or at least left hobbling from practice early and now 3 days out from their next match there are questions about whether Neymar will be playing in match day 2 and god you know we we kind of talked about a bunch of teams that have a lot of pressure on them and a lot of uh the weight of the world on their shoulders this brazilian squad is is not a team that i think is mentally tough enough to overcome Neymar going out and you know while they might have the pound for pound talent um you know, one thing goes wrong in match day two and they could find themselves, uh, maybe not at risk to get out of the group, but certainly find themselves in an unenviable position.
0: Yeah. The question is whether Neymar got hurt in the Swiss match, the The Swiss committed 19 fouls in that match and accrued three yellow cards. And it's one of those situations where, wow, that's remarkable that they committed 19 fouls, only got three yellow cards and nobody committed a bookable foul twice. That's really interesting. Um, Neymar gets dinged in that match, probably. Uh, I I don't have the uh, quotes on that. But I know he limped off the practice pitch today, so the question is, was he hurt during the match, uh, or did he aggravate something in practice today? It's hard to know. The bottom line is, they do get one break. They get to play Costa Rica next, and that's a team they can beat. Um, Serbia and Switzerland are going to face off in match day two. If Brazil takes care of business against Costa Rica their path to getting out of this group is a whole lot clearer. Um, and I, I wonder at this point how much belief there will be in the Costa Rica camp uh, insofar as that Serbia match was one They probably felt they needed to win to get out of this group. Uh, and now, uh, yeah, the, the the path is just not as clear as it was before.
1: Let me play the counter for Los Tigos. So if you're Costa Rica, you're coming off a disappointing result. But when you're able to kind of look at this Brazilian squad, and again, uh, knowing that Brazil was trying to to overcome the uh, 7-1 defeat to Germany in the last World Cup cycle, you know that that's still following them around. It's following them around in practically every highlight package on, on any network, any YouTube channel, uh, any Twitter feed. They're still trying to overcome that. And you know that mentally any of the guys who were involved in that last World Cup cycle are trying to exercise those demons. If you're Costa Rica, you're not only coming off of a 1-0 loss to Serbia motivated potentially, hopefully, uh, for their sake. But you also kind of look at this Brazilian squad that could not only be hobbled, uh, by the loss of Neymar, but also, uh, finding themselves in a bit of a tenuous situation. I mean, if, if you're Costa Rica and you're able to draw with Brazil, Brazil is only sitting on two points with a final matchup, uh, against Serbia. Now, obviously we would expect Brazil to beat Serbia, right? Um, but you never know but you, but you never know and if you're if you're Costa Rica and you're able to draw get a point and then I don't know you think that you might be able to come out and you know win your final match then you never know i mean there might be a path through if you are Costa Rica perhaps you decide that you need to go absolutely for broke and if you know that Neymar is not in the squad for Brazil which again we don't know at this point if Costa Rica goes for broke and puts it all on the line for match day two to go for three points, and are successful, which I think would be somewhat surprising. Uh, if they are able to to knock this Brazilian team down, to jump on them early, get them questioning themselves, then you're sitting on three points going into your final matchup, and Brazil is in a must-win situation in their final match. It, it could bring a lot of intrigue to this Group E that I think both of us, going into the tournament, were not uh, finding to be all that intriguing at all, a Costa Rica upset of Brazil would certainly change things for uh for us and our outlook going forward.
0: I do think, however, that Costa Rica trying to build themselves up into taking on Brazil and possibly trying to get all three points and hoping that they're mentally fragile is reminiscent of the mid sized guy being challenged to a fight by the school bully uh you know some afternoon at school. And, you know, the bully says, I'll meet you tomorrow morning at 7 a.m. before school. And the mid-sized guy spends all night kind of getting himself ready to have this fight. And he's going to hit him first, he's going to hit him hard, and he's going to win the fight. And then he shows up at the schoolyard at 7 a.m., looks at the bully and goes, yeah, he's going to work out. <laughs> I'm going to get my ass kicked. And I think that's where Costa Rica ends up here. I, My predictions so far have not been great. I'll be the first one to admit it. But this looks like Brazil 3.0. Uh,
1: scoring at least three and maybe three nil, maybe three one. But I think Costa Rica's is in deep trouble. Um, I'm just trying to think if there's a, another way to kind of approach this. Um, I think the way that the Swiss went after Neymar in their match is going to kind of speak to um, a strategy that I think a, a lot of teams, and I think we've seen it in this world cup. Yeah.
0: They've all done it already. A lot of these teams have gummed
1: it up when, when not only are you gumming it up, but then also um, getting physical with the, best player on the opposing side. I'll tell you what they're doing. They're
0: challenging the officials. They're challenging the referees to show cards. Yeah. um, And
1: so far, these referees have been
0: very hesitant to show cards because they're worried about being the men that make the decisions that lead to outcomes. And that's fine. But the the converse of that is, if you're afraid to show cards, if you're afraid to penalize fouls correctly, you're actually dictating the result by not
1: doing it. Bingo. The sin of omission is, is just as bad as the sin of commission. For these refs, um, when I kind of lo- when I look at this, the way that the Swiss attacked Neymar and the way that Iceland actually I think attacked and for a lot of their match shut down Messi, I think as you go forward and again assuming that Argentina or Brazil are able to go through, I think there is now a blueprint at least with those two players and uh, of course as you looked across you know even in the Spanish match against uh, Portugal. They shut down Ronaldo for the better part of the second half. They approach him differently. And I think if if you go into this, especially as an underdog, up against a team that has one of these, you know, top five, top ten players in the world, which a lot of these teams obviously are. You're in the World Cup. There's a reason for that. Uh, the more physical you get, and again, kind of to your point, knowing that these officials have been hesitant to make any kind of call, which again, a lot of that comes down to VAR, um... And, you know, whether or not people think that it should be used in this World Cup and if it's being used effectively, when you're putting that on the refs, I mean, I I think we're in a position that I like to see, which is let the guys play, let the game be a physical game. And obviously you don't want to see anybody get injured, but you also don't want to see the the same five or six players. And of course, Ronaldo is certainly one of those uh, who has always been guilty of flopping throughout his career. You don't want to see that ruin the game. I'm, I'm just thinking back to the Senegal match today, and I forget the guy's name who was going down the right flank. Um, got himself taken out. Wasn't that bad of a foul. Uh, goes off the pitch over to the sideline for medical help. Senegal ends up uh, getting a stop in their defensive end. Uh, big ball booted down to the right flank. Guy chases it down. I mean, he comes back onto the pitch without the ref's uh, approval and does a full sprint down the field. And I think it's Jake Yeah, that was it. Uh, JP Telecamera, who's typically the Philadelphia Union uh, announcer and who has called men's and women's World Cups in the past, um, points out the fact as he's making this dead sprint that the crowd is booing him because, you know, he had just been on the ground acting as though, you know, he'd been (laughs) shot by a sniper. Uh, That's my commentary, not his. And here he is in the last moment. He gets down into the box and uh, flops again, like flops within the box and the uh the defender obviously took exception to uh to him doing that once again. You kind of look back at it and and there are moments in these games where guys are obviously going to try to dive, they're going to take the minimal contact and try to sell that for a penalty. Ronaldo did it against Spain. I think any anybody who's even, you know, the biggest Ronaldo fan will admit there's some contact but probably not enough to take him to ground. We've seen it throughout. We have not seen, I believe, a yellow card issued for simulation yet in this tournament. Um But refs have been very hesitant to make any kind of call, especially any kind of call that could be uh, reviewed or overturned by VAR.
0: Let me make a quick clarification. I'm not sure Nyang was the one that that took the dive for Senegal. I know that Nyang was the player who was, uh, quote-unquote, injured, was on the sideline, and in the 60th minute was waved on by the officials at a completely inappropriate time, when the ball was not safely in the possession of either team, and in fact was too close to the midfield stripe for anybody's comfort, and he's the one that scores what ends up being the game-winning goal after which a Chesney loses his mind and comes out way too far, and uh, the Poles uh, you know, do a terrible job dealing with a back pass, et cetera, and so forth. But Neon should never have been in that position. And actually, you're talking about Della Camera. Uh De Camera and the rest of the announcing team pointed out that this was mismanagement of an injured player returning to the pitch by this refereeing crew, and that's not something that VAR can deal with. So, yeah, the referees are afraid to make calls in some spots. They're looking over their shoulder because VAR is going to do their work for them sometimes. They don't want to get shown up. They're already told by FIFA not to whistle close off sides and to let you know, plays finish to their natural conclusion, okay? And then they're making mistakes like allowing Young to come on when he has no business getting back on the pitch because the ball is not safely in and out of team's control. I don't know how it is that they hold a tournament like this and can't find competent officiating, but it seems that it's this way every
1: four years. Yep. It sure does. I, I don't know. It's uh, it's infuriating, to say the least. Let's move on to Group F. Um, Sweden and Mexico, leading the group currently after one match. And uh, I think we both kind of have a mea culpa in this group.
0: Yeah, one of us has a much bigger mea culpa than the other, but go ahead.
1: So I I definitely, going into this, I I always say I'm not a betting man, and it's a good thing, because in this case, I would have easily said that Germany should have won. I even tweeted before the game, anything less than a uh, four-goal domination by the Germans would have been uh, at least somewhat worrisome uh, for Die Mannschaft. They lose one nil to Mexico. Yeah, that and, may be joyful because when Mexico scored, I was able to tweet at you. Now they need five. Yeah, and again, like with the quality that Germany has, I wouldn't have put it past them to put five in the back of the net. Not only did I think that Germany was going to win that game, I thought they were going to sweep the entire group. I expected them to go three zero and zero. And you know, for a team that has been extraordinary extraordinarily dominant, um, even down through some of the. Uh, the U24s or U22s, U18s. Um, the the program as a whole has been dominant for the last few years. And I did not foresee a scenario in which they were going to lose to Mexico. And credit to Mexico for playing a fantastic counter-attacking game. Uh, Lozano looked like a man possessed, constantly getting down that left flank. And ultimately, Mexico deserved the result. But uh, not only did I think that Germany was going to go out and win every match, you also uh, happened to make a prediction that was almost as equally as bad.
0: Yeah, you know, my predicting South Korea to get out oh, of this group. Oh no, not that one. No, not that one. I
1: see. Whoa. Well, don't go jump ahead. ahead. You, uh, you, if, if memory serves uh, me correct. Wait a
0: minute. Yeah, I said Mexico wouldn't win a match. Yeah, you
1: group. said Mexico. I, I thought you said Mexico wouldn't get a point. Maybe I'm wrong. No, I said they wouldn't. Wouldn't win, win a match. Okay.
0: match in this group i said they would probably lose to germany and then draw the following two so yeah um el tree um i guess landon donovan's the happiest guy in the united states of america right now and alexi lalas is essentially 1a right um el tree's biggest (sighs) backers probably had to have that uh, red white and green scarf held aloft and super proud of our rivals slash neighbors to the south and isn't this great that our CONCACAF rivals went out and beat mighty Germany, something that we could probably never do if given a 100 chances? This was a disgusting result for me on a lot of levels. It killed two of my predictions, one of which was Mexico wouldn't win a match in this group. That fell by the wayside. But second of all, even before South Korea lost, which, of course, was essentially the end of that dream, um, I never thought that South Korea's path to getting out of this group, included Mexico getting three points against Germany. I assumed that Germany would, in fact, as you pointed out, go 3-0, and and that South Korea would essentially cage enough points from the other matches to sneak out. Well, once Mexico beat Germany, that door got locked, and South Korea didn't play especially well in its match either. So now, I'm stuck in a situation where, I don't know, Germany's probably going to find its way out of this group after all. I mean, probably. <laughs> I Probably. Really, well, I really hope that... Well, look, you really, as ridiculous whoa, as that comment is,
1: how ridiculous is it to suggest that they would lose to Mexico in the first match? I mean, it's it's certainly not something that was expected, but the, the idea that Germany's not going to get out of this group... I mean, I think four points gets you out of the group, right? So... How sure are you they're they're going to beat Sweden? Well, now? they're going to crush South Korea, and if if I'm right, and that's all it's going to take to get out is is four points, then all you have to do is draw Sweden. But I I, I don't see a scenario where that's going to happen. If Germany gets knocked well, out, Sweden's hold, got hold three on a points second. already. If Sweden's got three points if, already, I'm not sure that drawing Sweden's enough. It, it would depend on goal difference. It would. That point. It would. If Germany gets knocked out in in this stage in the group stage and doesn't even get to the elimination. Uh, the the round. That's of a 16. far higher
0: disgrace than my going out on a limb with South Korea. It
1: would be probably the biggest blunder in modern footballing history. I mean, Certainly it in would German be German footballing history. It would be one of the most disappointing results for any major nation in this in in the modern World Cup era. I mean, it it would be that disastrous. The we've talked about you know, French teams kind of faltering in this stage. We've talked about England having some issues. Uh, Italy, obviously, if you uh, was it the last World Cup cycle, I think, did they get out of the uh, the group stage? I'm trying to remember. But Germany, a team that was ranked number one in the world coming into this tournament, a team that was riding high. And again, a team that was absolutely dominant leading up to, uh, to this World Cup. If for some, in some very, very strange scenario that we're living in a a very odd simulation, and they are able to uh, find themselves on the outside looking in of the groups st- or the uh, the elimination stage. It would be catastrophic for the program, and it would it would then have to call into question, I guess, at least a little bit, Yugi Lo's decision to not bring Zane uh, with the with the squad. I mean, there were moments in this match where it, it certainly felt like Zane probably could have helped them. Um, one of the, I think the most shocking parts of this German Germany Mexico match was not only the fact that Mexico was so successful in their counter, which admittedly I did not expect. The fact that that Germany was so poor in, in the final third, I mean, were they getting shots off yeah, on occasion they were. Were any of them really all that dangerous? Not really. And and I was in this really weird position as um as a fan of Real Madrid. Like I'm a big Tony Kroos fan. I think he's a great player. I think he, he did an exceptional job when he played it uh Bayern Munich, I think he does a great job for Real Madrid, but when Tony Kroos is your only scoring threat, which it felt like for much of this game he was, the only guy who was willing to shoot from 18 plus yards out, the only guy who it seemed like had the killer instinct to try to put a uh, a ball on net, it, it just does not feel like a, a very uh, advantageous situation for Germany. And ultimately, like guys like Thomas Müller, who have come up large, like in the 2010 World Cup, Müller played out of his mind. Um, they, they just, they did not look right. And for all of the wunderkind talk that kind of surrounded Varner and, and Kimmich and all that, uh, I, I just, I, I don't know. It was, it was a very strange match and it was not something that I expected. And I think honestly, I think after 45 minutes, I think Germany didn't really uh, expect it either. And I, I don't think they made enough, um, halftime tactical changes because I think they thought that they were going to still be able to go out and on merit and on, just sheer talent and brute force, they were going to be able to go out and win this match. And it just didn't happen. It just felt like Germany was off from the first whistle. And, you know, I think it was probably the last 15 minutes they ended up bringing on Mario Gomez to try to, you know, net a header and try to uh, tie this thing up. It's just a very strange game. It did not feel like we were watching the same uh, Mannschaft that has dominated their way to uh, the top world ranking.
0: What minute would you have hauled Mesut Uzel off? I would have taken him off at halftime for sure. Probably the 60th. Minimally, yeah, 55th to 60th minute. He had to go. He is one of those players that if he is not creating and if he's not holding the ball up and he's not making things happen for his teammates, man, he is worthless. He just stands around and waits for something good to happen for him, something fortuitous, some bounce that he can create, and He was a disaster. The commentators mentioned that Ilkay Gundogan could have come on in this match, and I actually wholeheartedly agree. I think Gundogan would have contributed quite a bit. The one thing I will say is, very quickly, uh, as much as I love to fantasize uh, a path for Germany out of this tournament before the knockout stage, the truth is, as long as they don't lose to Sweden, they're probably fine because they get South Korea in their third match. And if it's a goal difference situation, Germany can score five, six, eight against South Korea and put themselves comfortably through.
1: I do wonder though, um, the, the inclusion of Kadira in the starting lineup, I thought was a little bit strange. Um, Kadira to me is a guy that you're going to put in, in a match where you really expect a lot of firepower coming the other way. And admittedly, um, when I look at this Mexican team, I didn't think that they had nearly the, uh, the amount of offensive firepower that I ended up, you know, proving that they had. So I guess in a sense, Yogi Lo was right to, to use Kadira. Um, but I, I do think that it kind of hurt their quality, at least, uh, in terms of being able to finish in that final third. And you're right. Like Uzil doesn't get subbed off at all in this match. And, um, yeah, I I don't know. Like Werner, Werner gets brought off for Gomez. And to me, that was kind of the ultimate call for, uh, or the, the cry of desperation from Lowe. I mean, it was, it was strange to me. Uh, if I think if Lowe could go back and run out a different lineup to start, I think he starts Royce over Kadira, tries to get an early um, advantage, and then brings in Kadira in that 60th minute to maintain what probably would have ended up being a 2-0 or a 2-1 lead. Um, flipped it the other way, they just didn't have the quality going forward. And there there were plenty of times that I think Germany came close, and, and there were a few shots that ding the post, and you know, maybe if a couple bounces go the other way, um, a Draxler cross here or there, or a, a Müller header like he had eight years ago, um, in South Africa. like I think this game takes a much more uh, drastic turn than it ended up taking, but uh, Germany, I don't really think, has a reason to panic at this point, but they need to get back to what's made them successful, and you know, getting killed on the counterattack is, is something that I don't think they expected, and ultimately, I think Mexico put out a, a very good game plan for, uh, for Sweden to maybe try to attack. I don't know if they'll be able to be successful or nearly as successful as Mexico was, but The game plan's there, and they proved that they could kind of break down this team.
0: I can't fault Le for starting Kadira. I look at this German national team the way I look at many of the power nations. It's essentially a beauty contest. If Leroy Sané can't make this club, then you have an awful lot of good players on this team. and So the margins are really fine, and it comes down to performances. I'm killing Ozil because he was horrible. If he'd played well and they'd won the match, I'd say it was exactly the right choice. Um, it's a hard job managing Germany. It's a hard job managing Brazil. It's a hard job managing Belgium, who we're going to talk about in a little bit. Because they have so much talent and so much quality that if you don't get results, you look like an idiot.
1: Yep. Uh, let's move on to Group G. Whew. Group G, man. Uh, we talked about Belgium and the fact that Belgium had been a dark horse before. Well, I talked about Belgium. You sort of poo-pooed it, but that's fine. Well, I, I think I was poo-pooing the notion, um, and it had been out there for some reason that that Belgium wasn't a or was still a dark horse, which they certainly weren't by virtue of their world ranking and just the fact that um, guys like Lukaku and Hazard um, are you know playing for large clubs, uh, cost quite a bit of money, and ultimately have a lot of eyes watching them every week. You forgot about Kevin De Bruyne. Oh, of course, Prince Harry himself, um, Carson Wentz. Better looking than both, really? Think so. Absolutely. Uh, okay. So Belgium absolutely destroyed Panama. It wasn't even close. The score line indicates what was uh, I don't know like a quasi competitive match. Three uh, Panama's three, three not nil. very good. Three nil doesn't. Panama's never three very nil good. doesn't look that bad, but uh, it very much could have been a uh, much more lopsided um, game. But that's not what we're here to talk about because we've expected Belgium to win and ultimately we expect Belgium to get out of this group and they will the the other match is one that we had kind of talked about and especially we had talked about the the psyche and the mental makeup of this English squad my god Phil uh, when when we were watching this match um, I have to assume that you were feeling very similar to the way that I was England looked screwed um, they they did not look like they were playing a uh, a lowly Tunisia side. Tunisia. Well, for the first 30 tu- minutes,
0: they looked really good tu- and they Tunis- didn't convert their chances.
1: Tunisia, as Tunisia. they like to call them on the uh, on the broadcast. Indeed. This Tunisia squad uh, certainly lacked the quality that you would um, hope to have in a World Cup, but man, they played this English squad hard uh, for 90 minutes, especially the, you know, kind of to your point, the latter 60, I think, they did a, a pretty decent job. And it took a Herculean effort by... Harry Kane, and what was it, the 92nd minute to put England ahead and to avoid what would have been a catastrophic result uh, for England?
0: Yeah, well, Harry Kane did exactly what I predicted England would do in this match, which is put to rest some of, not all of, but some of their ghosts of failures past. I said that this uh, Sterling-Kane group could propel England into a new future, get out of this group, maybe make a little run in the knockout stage, and they are now positioned to do that. Uh, but you're right, it took extra time. Now, here's the thing. As I said a moment ago, for the first 30 minutes, England ran rampant, and they should have scored two or three times. They didn't finish. These things happen. Then, even though they're up one nothing after those first 30-odd minutes, and it should be three or four, they still have a 1-0 lead, and everything's just fine. And then Manchester City's own Kyle Walker um, commits the dumbest penalty of this first match day. Tunisia has nobody in the box other than one guy. There's this hopeful cross gets looped in. And Walker, upon feeling this guy around his shoulder or his back, just like throws his arm out and hits the guy in the head. Well, the Tunisian player goes down, penalty, goal. Now it's 1-1, and England have to go to the locker room in a 1-1 match thinking, here we go again, we've blown it again. And look, Harry Kane did the business. He got them the goal they needed. 2-1's a hell of a lot better than 1-1, obviously. England is not out of the woods yet. They still have banana skins to dodge. But look, if they beat Panama, who's awful, really? And when you watch Panama play against Belgium, It was almost flashbacks to the United States playing Belgium four years ago in this tournament. These lowly, mid-table CONCACAF sides, and I count the United States men's national team among that group, don't really belong in this tournament. And that's what it looks like when Belgium gets a hold of Panama, when Belgium gets a hold of the United States. It's not fair. So England's probably going to beat Panama, and if they do that, they're going to go through. So I'm not particularly worried about either Belgium or England. In fact, when I said that my pick for this tournament was brazil in an entry with belgium uh i was presuming that brazil would be my number one and belgium my 1a but i may have to flip that
1: uh yeah i mean when i i think like the i don't know maybe the most surprising part of this um this group i guess you know you're not too concerned about england going through and i don't think there is any reason at this point to be worried if this tunisia result had gone a little bit differently if harry kane hadn't um put that ball in the back of the net in the 92nd minute. And we're having that, that conversation that I said, you know, England's obviously got to be afraid of having, um, which would be, you know, poor results against Tunisia in their opening match, the media getting on them, the fans getting on them. And then, um, you know, all that kind of pressure, the outside pressure kind of weighing down on this English squad. Uh, I think we'd be having a very different conversation, but you know, King Harry, you know, we have the Prince Harry lookalike and Kevin De Bruyne, uh, for Belgium. And then we have obviously the, uh, I guess soon to be crowned Prince Harry, Harry Kane, um, doing exactly what he needed to uh, to do, and just kind of adding to his legend within England. And
0: Minimally, Kane bought them five days of peace in the English press, which is really beyond value.
1: I was gonna say it's absolutely priceless. Um, so I, I guess we'll see. I you know they'll get out of the group, and you know barring some kind of cataclysmic breakdown in Match Day two or three, they should go on um, with at least some support from the English media. And then that will obviously get them to the, uh, the knockout stage, at which point I expect everything to fall back apart for them. So, uh, that's, that's just swell. Uh, last group, group H. And this was a, uh, group that I think you and I had, uh, I believe we had different winners coming out. Um, Japan and Senegal are currently leading the group. Colombia. Maybe with one of the strangest moments of the entire tournament, um, a, th- a third-minute straight red card issued uh, to uh, Carlos Sanchez, who stuck his arm out. The ball is uh, certainly going to find the back of the net. Japan with a with a you know what is supposed to be a very easy shot at a wide-open net. Uh, Sanchez nowhere near the goal, by the way. Probably somewhere around the penalty spot, if, I, if memory serves me correct. Extends the arm, straight red card, penalty. Uh, he's out of the game three minutes in. Japan goes on. I mean, to Colombia's credit, they managed to score while down a man. Um, Japan ends up winning the match 2-1, to one, and uh, they needed every bit of that one-man advantage uh, for 87 minutes to come out with this result. But ultimately, Colombia comes out with a terrible result. Not only do they lose Sanchez, but uh, they're put in a situation where uh, they bring in James Rodriguez off the bench and he works some of his magic, but his magic certainly was not nearly enough and a terrible result for Colombia, a very surprising result and a great result for Japan as they look to try to get out of this group. And, you know, Senegal, Senegal gets it done against uh, against Poland in a match that we kind of already alluded to earlier, you know, some some strange um, I guess we would say strange behavior by some of the Senegal players, especially those who uh, act like their leg was just blown off to then, uh, you know, the, the moment that possession changes, they're uh, pursuing the ball down the field at a full sprint, uh, shades of forest Gump trying to run across the country looking for Gen A.
0: Well, this is what it takes to have Japan and Senegal leading this group after match day one. You need strange things to happen. You need a Colombian player to get thrown out of the match three minutes in and not only get a red card, but also concede a penalty in the doing of it. I mean, obviously, if Colombia had lost a player to a red card on a terrible rash tackle on the midfield stripe, they played down a man the entire time, but it's still nothing-nothing. They not only lose a man, now they're down one-nothing, and they're looking around and saying, how the hell did this happen to us? So the Japanese took advantage of it. You got to give them all the credit in the world. They played really, really well, and you said they needed all of that advantage for... Uh, 87 minutes. Well, but they took it. <laughs> they actually got the result, which after Colombia scored uh, toward the end of the first half, it looked like 1-1. And Japan got that result, and you know, good for them. Now, meanwhile, we, we did talk a bit about Poland and Senegal earlier, uh, and some of the strange things that happened. Some of the Senegalese with the dives, and of course, Sen- the, the Senegal second goal, what ends up being the game winner, being aided by essentially mismanagement of an uh, injured, injured player coming back on the pitch. But... I don't want this to be about what Senegal should have done, didn't do, did do, et cetera, and so forth. Poland were bad. They were bad in this match. They were down 2-0. They get a goal toward the end, which makes the scoreline look a little better. But I'm here to tell you, Lewandowski, again, was not good. Szczesny was brain dead, as he often is. And I just don't know that Poland shakes this off and gets home after this. This group has been turned upside down. Um... I have a lot more faith in Colombia sorting it out and getting out of this group than I do Poland.
1: Absolutely agree. I don't think there's any other way to to approach this. I think you're totally right. Poland was absolutely—I uh, I don't know. I, I guess the nicest way to put it would just be they were disappointing. They just did not look like a team that wanted to be in this World Cup. And uh, shame and on here's them. Here's the problem: in a short tournament, in a short tournament,
0: one result like this can really end it for you. Yep, prematurely. Um, obviously, if Colombia had taken care of business against Japan, Poland could shrug off this result and say, well, as long as we win the next two, we figure Colombia is going to blast the group, and if we get six points, we're out. Well, now, Colombia is the one who's probably going to now buckle down and win their next two matches. Japan already has three in the bank. Senegal already has three in the bank. You know, What's the answer for Poland? How do you get home? I'm not sure that there's a way out.
1: It certainly does bring a little bit of intrigue to this uh this group H, a group that I think going into it, you and I had kind of thought uh, the cream would rise to the top, but we knew that there could be, um, you know, it, just like any World Cup, a couple weird things happen, and and the group is turned upside down, as you alluded to, and that's kind of where we're at. And it's funny because in our Slack chat, uh, that's been one of the things that I think has has kind of come up the most with uh, some of our colleagues who are not soccer aficionados. They've asked, you know, why it seems like there's so much parity in this World Cup, and and. It's kind of to the point you just made, it's a short tournament. And whether it's a team taking their opposition lightly, if it's the travel, if it's where the team is staying, again, kind of referring to the uh, the American Fiasco podcast with Roger Bennett, like, the idea that, you know, maybe where these teams are staying, are, did their federation kind of seclude them off in the French Riviera, like happened in 1998? Or, you know, is it is it just a disconnect between the players and what their expectation was going into this world cup and the way that they've been kind of operating off the field. These are all factors again, like human factors that we do not as fans typically kind of, you know, allow ourselves to, um, to indulge. in. I guess we, we one more to that
0: point. So Egypt is essentially out of this tournament now and coming into it, you would hear Egypt and you'd think most and you'd think, well, we've heard he's well enough to go and he might, uh, actually be able to carry them after all, even though he got uh, maimed in the uh, Champions League final by one of your boys. But the problem is, neither you nor I nor anybody else really knows how most of La feels except for him. And he didn't play in the first matches I recall, and they lost. He played today. He had had, I think, one full training session before this match. He wasn't great, and they lost, and that's it. You know, there's not three weeks or a month for him to figure this out. In six days, Egypt goes from, you know, better than a coin flip to get out of this group to being done. And it can really come down to your best player not being right or not performing. We talked earlier about Luis Suarez. Well, his team suffered from his poor performance. Now, fortunately for him, he has time to fix it. But that's how this goes. If your best players don't play their best, it's a short tournament for you.
1: You're totally right. It's a shame, too, because for some of these guys that are such high-quality players, like, obviously, we've talked about the fact that Salah was playing uh, out of his mind all season. Um, He won, what was it, English Player of the Year, right? Uh, Was the PFA Award, PFA Player of the Year. Um, You know, you look at some of these guys that have kind of taken their leagues by the throat throughout this this season and, and are, you know, studs for their international clubs. It's a shame to see some of them it appears going out so early in this World Cup. But, you know, part of, part of you know, certain groups being kind of turned upside down and, and everything um, that makes the whole tournament intriguing is the fact that, you know, you're one bad break away. You're one var overturned penalty call away from pulling off the improbable result. And, you know, would I argue that a knockout stage that has Japan and Senegal is going to be better than having Colombia in it? Um, I, I would not say that that is a better thing for the sport, but you know it certainly does add some intrigue. I think that either Japan or Senegal would be uh, a matchup that pretty much any of these other teams getting out of the other groups would love to sink their teeth into. Uh, Colombia is a scary team. It's just you know you're one boneheaded play away from probably knocking this Japanese team uh, down a, a couple pegs if you're Colombia. Um, it's it's just a very strange situation it's almost as, being, it's almost as strange as and incoherent as that little point was, but like it's amazing. imagine
0: being Japanese or Senegalese, and your hopes in this tournament were definitely shaded by the fact that Colombia was in your group and Poland was in your group. and you thought, those are more likely than not sides that advance in these tournaments. They're just time tested, and they're better than us. And now, after match day one, You don't necessarily feel that way anymore. I mean, think about that. It's, it's hope. It's special. It's why you play these matches. If, if we could always predict that the better team was going to go through, there'd be almost no reason for the group stage.
1: Yep. You're totally right. Um, Real quick before we head out, uh, VAR has certainly been something that we've talked about in the past. And it's, it's something that I think has made this world cup interesting insofar as I think VAR has worked. and I think VAR has been exceptional. I think, that the presence of VAR has led to a game that I think overall for you know people who know what they're watching and even for the casual fan has made a more enjoyable tournament. Um, a few stats that are going around about VAR. Um, currently, through uh, the first round of matches, 0.06 is the number of red cards per game. That's, mar- that's the fewest since 1986 uh, where there were zero at this stage. Only one has been given out, and that was uh, in the Columbia match. 2.81 is the average number of offsides per game, the least recorded at any World Cup in this stage. The previous low was from 1966. It was 3.13. There have been 0.56 penalties on average per game, the most since 1966. In both 2006 and 2010, there were just 0.06 per game at this stage. And finally, 55.3% of goals in this World Cup so far have come off of set pieces. That's 25% higher than the uh, 2014 World Cup. And when we kind of look at the impact that VAR has, not only mentally on the officials, uh, there was a, I'm trying to find the quote, there was somebody that had been quoted uh, in European media that had said, uh, I think it was a former referee who had said, You know, as a player and as a coach that you've been told likely by FIFA, by the match officials, by whomever, that there are 33 different cameras at any given point that are tracking your every motion, your every move, and all of them could be reviewed. So when you're watching, you know, we've we've heard and we've talked about the fact that the assistant referees uh, calling offsides have been told, do not call offsides under any circumstances unless you know it is definitive. If it's close, don't call it. Keep the flag down. And if a goal ensues and it goes to VAR and it's determined that it was offside, let that become a VAR decision. We've seen it happen there. We've seen it happen on penalty calls that had been missed, that ended up going to VAR, the Griezmann uh, one comes to mind, uh, penalties that had been called that had been revoked. I mean, it's it's been kind of all over the place, but I think ultimately it it has increased the quality of the game. And if you know that a referee missed multiple calls or missed multiple penalties it's good to know that VAR is there. And not only has it been an effective uh, tool, it's also been done in what I would consider to be a reasonable time frame. I don't feel like we've lost any major match time uh, due to VAR for a, you know, a, a minor infraction. It's, it's all been worthwhile, including the, uh, the red card that we had mentioned a little bit ago um, against Colombia. That direct red card, that goes immediately to VAR, where VAR could overturn the red card, still allow the penalty, um, but depending on intent and such, they could have overruled the red card. They chose not to. They said that it was intentional. Um, I think VAR has been good, and I think it's been done in a, in a respectable time frame, and I think ultimately the people who were questioning its implementation and, and if it belonged, I think uh, the results kind of speak for themselves.
0: This is the last of the terrible predictions that I made, which was that VAR would probably struggle, and the use of it would be Uh, fraught in the early matches. So yeah, I agree with you. It's been really good so far, and it has helped rather than hurt, which is the number one thing you can hope for. But I'll warn you about this. Just as I indicated earlier, that the group stages are one thing and the knockout round's another. VAR is just one botch in the knockout round from being the scourge of this tournament. So the folks that think that video-assisted review is important and needs to be part of soccer going forward and better hope that a match is not wrongly decided based on video review
1: i agree phil um we will be back again after match day two for phil Kaidel on twitter at phil keidel k-e-i-d-e-l it's not hard to spell it's phil Kaidel. i'm russ joy at joy on broad we will talk to you again after match day two looking forward to some great matches and we'll be breaking it down on crossing broad fc